It's Thursday, August 18th. This is the Hermetic Hour with host Polk Runyon, and tonight we present a review and discussion of Robert A. Heinlein's 1959 science fiction novel, Starship Troopers, and the 1997 film version. Tonight I'll be joined by Max Paul, Frater Sithmeth. Stand by, Max in the discussion of this controversial cult classic. Set in the future interstellar time period when Earth is the center of a federation, similar to Star Trek's, uh, with a government which appears to be based on Plato's Republic, the Earth is attacked by a race of intelligent insects who control meteors as weapons of mass destruction. The federation must fight to survive. The story of the war is told from the viewpoints of young people who join the military, serving in all branches. They come together in the climax in a final battle, which turns the tide in favor of the Federation. The Federation is presented as an authoritarian state that appears superficially fascist, more so in the film than in the novel. Actually, its concepts of citizenship are more socialist than fascist. Heinlein was a liberal Democrat who had come to believe that liberal democracy had failed. And like John Fitzgerald Kennedy, he seemed to be saying, ask not what your country can do for you, but rather what can you do for your country? Now, as a former paratrooper, this is one of my favorite novels and films. So I hope you enjoy our exploration of this classic. Max, are you on board? I'm here. Can you hear me? Uh, yeah, I can hear you. Uh, but uh, but my hearing aid in this ear isn't working, so 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 try to speak oh. up so I can hear you. And, and uh, right, that'll I'll work try. for everybody, too. Okay. All right. Anyway, I was fortunate enough, because it's been so long since I read Starship Troopers. I mean, uh, that's years and years ago. And I've forgotten, i really forgotten a lot about it, but I was fortunate enough to find an audio book version. So I, 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 got, I got through the first couple of chapters uh, on the audio book the other night, and it, it was quite an insight because I found out, I found out uh, a lot of things about the book that, that the film does not, does not do justice to. And one of the things... I discovered well, were the the actual tactics of, of the mobile infantry. Apparently, the tactics are, were completely different in the book than the way they pictured them in the film. For one thing, they didn't come down when they well. Let let, let the set the story right. The book opens up, and by the way, Highland dedicated the book to his drill sergeant and to all the drill sergeants who turned boys into men. That was his dedication. And the book opens up with Rico, who, and this is to be surprising to the film people, Rico in the book is not an Argentinian of German descent, like, like, he, like most of his friends. He's actually a Filipino, and so is Carmen and Carl, the rest of them. The book opens up with Rico just about to jump, and not against the arachnids, only the arachnids are mentioned. They, they're still a hostile menace, 
But um, when the book opens up, but uh, Rico is going down uh, with a raiding party, airborne raiding party, is coming down on a on an objective inhabited by by people they call skinnies. Now these aren't <laughs> these are not our Mogadishu skinnies that we're that we're used to. Uh, these are nine foot tall humanoids that are very very slender, and they call them skinnies. And anyway. But anyway, the mobile infantry, which is uh, essentially an airborne unit, the mobile infantry does what 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 we would call a, a high-level, low-opening jump. They, they they leave the mothership uh, in the stratosphere, and they and they come down in capsules. And these capsules are like like you know Russian nesting dolls. As they go down. Uh, the capsule starts shedding uh, shedding levels, and uh, and then finally, they don't actually parachute until they've about they've gotten rid of about the third casing. And these guys are wearing body armor, of course, just like well, much more of elaborate body armor than than is in the film. But Heinlein Heinlein, what obviously was not a paratrooper, but but he did study airborne tactics. The tactics that they use in the opening of the book are much more like the Russian airborne than the American airborne. The reason is that uh, they don't open they don't open their chutes until you know until they're uh, say about five thousand feet feet up, and then they land on the objective. They actually land. On the objective, that's Russian tactics. That's not American tactics. Uh, the Russians, as far as they were concerned, the airborne was totally expendable. The Russians would just dump these guys out at about 3,000 feet and let them come down shooting. And they'd actually they'd get their their little burp guns loose when they were they were uh, you know a couple thousand feet above ground, and they would start shooting from the air downward. And that this, of course, is is, is crazy, it's ridiculous. But but that's what the Russians did, and they landed their their airborne troops directly on the objective. The Americans, we didn't do that. What we did was we picked a drop zone near the objective, and we we first sent a team of pathfinders in to secure the drop zone, and then we would go out at 800 feet above the ground, and boy, that's just time enough to have your chute open and you hit the ground like a ton of bricks, but by gosh, nobody's going to shoot at you in the air if you're coming down from 800 feet. And and then, but you might get shoot, you might get shot rolling up if the pathfinders haven't secured the drop zone. You might get you might get shot rolling rolling up your chute. But uh, anyway, there's difference in tactics, and uh, it's, it appears in this case that the uh, Heinlein is favoring the Russian. Uh, you know. The Russian version of jumping directly on the objective. Anyway, Rico uh, Rico coordinates with his other with his other people by radio, and and they try to rendezvous and land in the objective, and and they aren't really trying to kill Skinnies, but they but they're trying to they're trying to scare them, and they want to burn the town down. Uh, anyway, that's that's the original that that's the first operation. Now. I that didn't manage, manage to get to the uh, the Klandatu invasion. We'll talk about that later in the film. 
when I was listening to, when I was listening to the audio version of the book. But uh, then we went right from Rico's uh, landing in his little raid against the Skinnies. We went right into him remembering how he got in, how he got in the mobile infantry and all of this, and 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 remembering the professor's lectures in school. Now, as those of you most most of the people we're talking they're listening to us have probably seen the film, or if they if they haven't, they will. The professor, as the the guy that lost his hand, he's the professor. He was a former mobile infantry officer, and who went back to teaching school. And uh, he is kind of modeled in a way on that that professor in All Quiet on the Western Front. You remember that uh, that German professor who who kind of talks talks his students into going into joining up in the German army for World War One. Now this professor, being a combat veteran and all that, he is trying to educate these kids and the these kids have had a lot of liberal a lot of liberal propaganda, you know, molding them and the and and the professor who eventually goes back in the in the mobile infantry and becomes a a, a lieutenant and is, is the officer leading Rico and all the rest of them. Anyway the professor comes up with the main philosophy of the film and the book. And he looks at the people and he says, violence, violence is the most essential element in civilization. And all these kids are shocked because they've all been told that war is terrible, you know, and all oh, we got to have peace and all this kind of stuff. And uh, let me say at this point uh, that, that Heinlein had been a liberal Democrat for for years, but with all the juvenile delinquency uh, rising up around the 1950 and 90, uh, around the late 1950s, uh, he con- he had concluded that liberal democracy had failed. That was Heinlein's conclusion, and so uh, that was when he, when we signed the Test Ban Treaty, he wrote. He started writing Starship Troopers right after that. But anyway, the the professor says violence is what secures civilization. It is the main factor behind civilization. And these kids are shocked. And he says, he says, you don't have any inalienable rights. You, You people think you have the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness? No, you don't. Anybody stronger than you are can take it away from you. And therefore... The only way you can survive is to band together in a community and, and that, that will give you these rights. And when you have these rights, then you can have civilization. Well, of course, that's true. And, and that's, 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 I think, the whole best basis of the book is established right there. That is fairly well presented in the film. As you had pointed out, Max, the producer that made the film... I think he was a recalcitrant Argentinian German who was ashamed of ashamed of uh, Nazism, some of which you know ended up in Argentina. And he he produced the film, and he never read the book. He had somebody else write the screenplay. Uh, he never read the book, but the guy that wrote the screenplay, in many cases, he recounted what was really in the book, especially the professor's. A speech and viewpoint. 
Okay, Max, what are your thoughts on that? Well, as you said, Paul Villanueva, uh, Verhoeven, sorry, Paul Verhoeven, who was the director of Starship Troopers, the movie, had not read the book. He said he got through about two chapters, got bored, and stopped, um, which is, <laughs> which is uh, odd. I know that the, the person, the screenplay by Edward Neumeyer, uh, does a fairly good job of presenting Heinlein's work, but at the same time, they tried explicitly to create what they thought was a humorous, ironic uh, presentation of fascism. What they were trying to say is that war makes fascists of us all. But Edward Neumeyer did such a, a fairly honest job of presenting some of the concepts in the book, which I assume that Paul Verhoeven and Edward Neumeyer thought was fascist, that when they presented it semi-honestly as they did, it actually isn't fascist at all. It's uh, a constitutional republic. The only difference is that the suffrage, that suffrage, the ability to vote, is based on some kind of grueling public service, which anyone can do at any time. And so they thought that the militarism in the book equated to presenting fascism. But this is, I don't know, this is a very strange thing to actually, I think it's, I, I don't know whether this is a, a, a comment on just how soft and democracies are these days, or at least how distant most people in regular life are from any kind of hard uh, survival that we think that any form of militarism must equate to the fascism of the early 20th century. But um, this is certainly not the case. And to your point, yes, uh, previously, um, the, the tactics are very, very different. Uh, Paul Verhoeven wanted to present like this kind of a World War II style wave after wave of people and showing that life it means nothing. They wanted to show that the, you know, the lives of these regular troopers was, was nothing and that it was, uh, you know, almost like the Soviets sending wave after wave of men into Stalingrad. But in the book, in the book, sorry, they are wearing the best gear that you could possibly wear. They're a small elite um, special forces unit. The mobile infantry are exactly that. They're mobile infantry, and they're designed to get in there and do the dirty work. They wear power armor. It was one of the very first uh, fictional representations of powered armor, which is only now just becoming somewhat of a reality. In um, I know that the Texas University yeah. has been developing powered armor, um, it'll, be, it'll probably be a long time before it is inexpensive enough to actually hand out to regular soldiers. Let no me interrupt you here uh, for a second. Uh, I was very disturbed in the film. Watching the film, I was very disturbed by the, uh, the Klandatu operation. And I want to get into the book, because uh, it's been so long since I read the book. I want to go back and finish the uh, uh, the audio book or get a copy of the book myself. I because so in the film we've got this huge fleet of motherships, 
that are orbiting around Klandatu. They're in orbit, and they're going to launch this invasion. They're, they're in the film. They're not doing capsule drops uh, through the stratosphere like they like they do in the beginning of the book. Uh, they're launching what what are analogous to landing barges, and they've got these kids all all in these landing barges, and they're launching the landing barges, and the landing barges are coming down under their own power and landing. Uh, in, in the landing zone, or kind of like a beachhead, actually. And, and while they're doing this, if you if you look closely, and you got to look closely, up up uh, at the motherships in orbit, they they are launching a whole bunch of fighter bombers, and you see the fighter bombers going down. But there is no damn air support when the kids come come out of the landing landing craft. There's no air support. They're swarmed by these insect, these insect warriors, and they have no air support at all. And all that air, that air support was coming down. And then the other thing is you've got uh, the bugs. The bugs have their own anti-aircraft artillery, anti-aircraft artillery bugs. And these bugs launch plasma. They launch streams of plasma, and they're decimating they're decimating the motherships, and of course, uh, the mobile infantry is trying to—they're trying to nuke the bugs, and they get a, the, uh, the anti-aircraft bugs, and they're and they're getting a few of them. As a former paratrooper, I—I—I uh, I, I, I was just horrified by that clandestine thing. I thought, who in the hell would ever ever do a thing like this? This was this was as bad as Gallipoli or as Wake Island. It was terrible. I'm wondering, as I say, I want to I want to get into the book uh, and find out how they had how Heinlein handled it in the book. Uh, do, do you recall at all whether what there was the, any the difference in the tactics? To be fair, it's been a while since I've read the book too, but I do know that there is a massive difference in tactics. Um, in the film, they attempt to present the most arrogant possible tactics imaginable because they're attempting to present Again, the concept that life means nothing in a fascist regime, which it isn't a fascist regime, but they're attempting to put the militaristic veneer of it. So they're showing this wave. I mean, it's spectacular. I mean, the film is spectacular, showing wave after wave of troops, and they think, oh, we're just going to overrun them, or we're just going to gun them down. Again, in, in the book, they don't use tactics like that one single mobile infantryman in powered armor is capable of devastating hundreds and hundreds of bugs with multiple rocket pods and all kinds of things that they might that they maybe use they're fully supported it's just that there aren't that many of them in comparison to the bugs the bugs uh will i think uh highland says yeah, you know the bugs expend soldiers the way that we expend ammunition uh, he describes yeah. the bugs as the perfect communistic society uh, because they're evolved yeah. to, to, to do it. They, he says that the, the bug commissars don't think twice about expending their, uh, spending the lives of their soldiers in the same way that they don't you know, worry about the expense of yeah. ammunition or you would not care about, say, losing a few skin cells here and there. Uh, yeah. But the mobile infantry is bugs, an elite fighting the, force. Yeah, the, the bugs... Oh, the bugs are the perfect enemy. You know what? One of the main things I think that that uh, 
some of the liberal critics don't like about this about this film is it is basically the professor's philosophy and the and the film justifies that philosophy. Uh, the bugs are the perfect enemy. You can't have a more perfect enemy. Uh, we tried in World War II. We tried to make the Japanese inhuman with our propaganda, and and we tried to make the the Germans inhuman too, both in World War One and World War Two. Uh, but in this case, uh, the bugs, uh, the Arachnids, they are the perfect enemy because they obviously don't want to communicate. They don't want to negotiate. They're the ideal enemy for political purposes. And I want to point something out here. You remember Eisenhower, when he left office, he warned us about the military-industrial complex, and he himself had been the general in command of American forces in Europe at World War II. And as president, he became aware that the military, uh, which, of course, was using the Cold War naturally, uh, the military-industrial complex was using the Cold War as an excuse to spend more and more money on on atomic weapons and everything else and missiles and everything else. And that was boosting the economy. So Eisenhower warned us when he left office. He warned the American people in a speech, uh, beware of the, of the military-industrial complex. And, of course, Heinlein, with this book, Heinlein is certainly supporting the military-industrial complex, and he has the perfect villain in the Arachnids because, you know, there's no way you can like these bugs. You can't like these bugs at all. And and when he shows the kids the kids doing their part, you know, crushing bugs, uh, stamping bugs, and they're doing their part too. They're they're killing cockroaches, and <laughs> and it's it was perfect. And I want to uh, mention the report from Iron Mountain Government Symposium in 1959, around the time that Highland wrote the book, this group of people, including Kissinger and a lot of other other think tankers, they got together at a place called Iron Mountain, and they had a symposium on what do we do if we have world peace? What happens when the, when we, when the Cold War is finally over? And they produced this big, long document justifying war justifying war in order to to keep the economy going and in order to control the people. And this document, it got published, and it was terribly embarrassing for, for them uh, when the document got published. But uh, it brought up a point. They even mentioned, and they even mentioned Orwell in, in the symposium. They said that Orwell, you know, in 1984, he divided the whole world into Eurasia, Oceania, uh, and Europa, and had them all fighting each other. Uh, then, then one would make peace with the other, and then they then it all gang up with a third. They they have so they could have continual war in order to in order to uh, keep the economies going and in order to keep the people under control. So Heinlein, in a sense, Heinlein is kind of supporting that. Although I don't think I don't think he was he was aware of Iron Mountain, but. The idea, what do we do, what, what do we do, and how do we run the country when we have world peace? Or how do we run the world or whatever? 
this is kind of a frightful thing for the liberals because the liberals are all into oh we got to have world peace world peace is one of their is one of their uh, uh, their mantras you know every oh it's got to be world peace and yet as the professor says tells the kids in class violence is what creates and makes civilization go without violence you don't have it and you don't have your rights you've got to fight for your rights you have to fight for them now i'd like to mention along with that that uh uh our favorite uh uh homegrown philosopher jack parsons in freedom is a two-edged sword which we which you can get and here comes a plug you can get that in the seventh ray omnibus uh, which is available from the from amazon and jack parsons has a chapter in there called the sword and the state and he deals with this to some degree jack parsons says that conscription is wrong we should not conscript soldiers uh we should have like plato suggested a professional military class and that should be a form of federal service like they point out in the in, in, in starship troopers you know and i used the analogy of John Fitzgerald Kennedy with his Peace Corps. That that was a very good idea. And yet, uh, the liberals right now, and especially in Europe, they would say, oh, well, that was just America, uh, part of the American empire's uh, neo-colonialism. I don't, well, anyway, um, two years federal service, uh, and and it, as you were mentioning, it should be rough federal service. It shouldn't be easy. Uh, you should earn citizenship. And also, uh, Heinlein civilization, as as we know, and they show this in the film, it's meritorious. And what part of the problems with what we have going on right now is they're putting people in office, uh, even in in cabinet position, they're putting totally incompetent people in office. Uh, and and if you're going to have socialism or you're going to have or any kind of ism, you've got to have it's got to be meritorious, and and that's one of the things uh, you have, people have to be qualified for jobs. You want to comment on all this? Well, I have to um, disagree with you, actually, Polk. Um I have to disagree when you say that he would have supported the military-industrial complex uh, for one because. Uh, Robert Heinlein, um, I mean, as you stated, he was a, a liberal Democrat. He supported many Democrats here in, in California. And again, there's a lot of militarism. Certainly his book is an homage to his, as you said, his drill sergeant to whom he dedicated it to. And he also was an homage to all the fighting soldiers. Um, now, the quote that, that you reference about violence is he says that violence, naked force, has settled more issues in history than has any other factor. And the contrary opinion is wishful thinking at its worst. People that forget this basic truth have always paid for it with their lives and their freedoms. And when you vote, specifically in, this, in, the, in the movie, they reference this one here, that uh, when you vote, you exercise, uh, you exercise force and is violent the supreme authority from which all other authority derives. The thing about these quotes, and I think a lot of people who you would describe as liberals don't like about this, is they don't want to 
um, they don't want to accept this as a reality. Very similar to in the 1600s when Machiavelli wrote The Prince. There were many books in those days that attempted to describe how one should behave as a nobility, as a prince, as a, uh, as a ruler of any kind, and often made um, appeals to religious and moral virtue. But Machiavelli was a realist. He was just describing things. Reading The Prince, The Prince is still one of the most valuable books someone can read when it comes to understanding the power play that takes place from uh, when someone is attempting to be a ruler and maintain control. I mean, one of the classic phrases from that is that if well, that it's regularly misquoted as that one should wish to be feared rather than loved. So the original quote is more along the lines that if you have to choose between being loved and feared, then you need to choose fear. Fear is the one that you need to choose when you're a ruler. That sort of tenor, that tone, comes through in these strident and passionate arguments that Heinlein um, puts forward in this book, which is essentially a vessel for his politics. Um, many of the characters continuously wax lyrical about, you know, very eloquently, regardless of who they are, whether it's the the sergeant or the drill, the drill instructor or otherwise will talk at length about very nuanced politics and very nuanced morality. Well, and in this, well, in this uh, book, let me let me interrupt. Let, let me interrupt you. Uh, it's symbolized when uh, when they finally capture the brain bug, you know, the intellectual villain of the Arachnids, and they finally capture him. And Carl, the intelligence colonel goes up and puts his hand on the brain bug and telepathically melds with the brain bug. And then the general says, what's he thinking, Carl? And Carl turns around and says, he's afraid. That's it. They've they, they finally gotten through to the bugs. they finally gotten through to them. They scared the hell out of them. And I think that that sort of justifies the whole idea of the strongest you know, if you if you want to have rights, if you want to survive as a species, I uh, remember Carl said, "We're in this for the species, kids. They have more they have more bugs than we have humans, and we gotta we gotta win. And the only way we can win is to scare the hell out of the bugs, which they did." Yeah, quite right. I mean, in the again in the film they present. Um, they want to somewhat deliberately make it seem as though humans, the humans were the aggressors. Uh, this is a pretty regular peak of the film, but it's, it's strange that these people critiquing didn't see the uh, one little passage down the bottom, the line that says one year earlier, where you then go to see Rico and the kids all being in their high school and getting ready and joining the service. Yeah. That the bugs were, in fact, the aggressor, this mindless, well, not mindless, because as it says even in the book, you know, stupid species don't build spacecraft. They are in a very hyper-aggressive, amoral, um, as you said, the perfect enemy for a war story. They can't be reasoned with. All yeah. they want is the absolute destruction of the species. It's kind of the same reason why Tolkien would write about the orcs or something along yeah. those lines. Because 
these are uh, entirely inhuman species, so they're very easy for us to have a certain revulsion towards. And well, some, has the some of the human, some of some look, some some of the of the people in the Federation that were trying to defend the bugs, they did point out that the Mormons went to one of the bug planets and and tried to colonize it, and the bugs wiped out the Mormons, and the way Heinlein got this was the history of the Congo and several and several countries in Black Africa, uh, where the Europeans missionaries went in there, and and tried to actually tried to colonize and convert the and convert the blacks to their particular form of Christianity, and then of course when the missionaries got killed and sometimes eaten, then in come the the troops. And, of course, the troops come in with machine guns, and then the blacks get Christianity whether they want it or not. That that was kind of what the idea of the Mormons going to the bug planet and trying to trying to build this colony, and the bugs wiped them out. And so then we do just like the colonials did uh, when the Africans wiped out the missionaries. We send in the troops. You know, that, that was the analogy. But that doesn't work because... Uh, the, when the when the Mormons went in there, you know, they they didn't they they had no idea that the uh, that the bugs considered the planet theirs or anything like that, and they just thought it was uh, it was just a, a planet that they could colonize. But the fact that there was no communication, I say, there was real no, really no communication between the colonists uh, or the military and the bugs at all. So. I think Heinlein, in a way, using that, that Mormon colony as a kind of a, an analogy, he was kind of putting in a little bit of a, a, giving a little justification, you know. The media strike, which in the movie at least wipes out visibly nine, roughly nine million people, and that's the worst loss of life in human history ever. Um, <laughs> so... Um, it seems that in the film, at least the media in the film, presents it as unprovoked, a little tongue-in-cheek. And there's no knowing, yeah. really, at least in the film, the interplay between the, uh, the arachnid species and the Federation when it comes to the, what they said. The, the Mormon colonists went into the, um, the exclusion zone, which they knew maybe had uh, bugs in it. Maybe not. Evidently it did because they murdered all the Mormons. Um, but we don't know the, the, the interplay between them, but we do know that the bugs have no interest in diplomacy whatsoever. It seems like they yeah. could, but maybe that's just not part of what they are. Again, I think he creates the bug species as, as you say, it's the perfect enemy upon which he can then tell us a story from one side as nuanced as he likes without having to deal with like the more uh, sticky, difficult nuance of say some colonists going to the Congo because I mean the human colony there you could feasibly um, very easily talk with them, they might not want you there and they might still kick you out and fair enough but um, you can talk to them. They do. They are human beings, and they can reason. And so there's a much more. So sending in the military to then wipe them out is well. Human history is extraordinarily difficult, 
dark and nuanced. But this, with bugs that just want to wipe out all human civilization, period, it's a very simple enemy, very simple goal. But it allows him to then tell his idea of politics from one side, sort of unchallenged. Yeah, I thoroughly agree with you. And as far as the Congo is concerned, I don't, I really don't care how bad we, and I say we including the Belgians, and that's King Leopold and the Belgians, I don't care how bad we were to the Congolese. That in no way justifies the horrors of Paula Mayombe. Uh, it doesn't. I mean, uh, it, it, just because evil injustice generates evil, that doesn't mean that evil isn't evil. And and I think yes, the same thing right. can be said for the bugs, for the arachnids and, and starship troopers. They were just well, plain they evil. evil. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Uh, yeah. I I don't know. I think that um, if you look at the audio book, the commentaries online, the people that read the audio book, a lot of the, the younger generation have listened to the audio version of, uh, of Heinlein Starship Troopers. And the comments that they are leaving are very, very good. So they say, oh, I saw the movie, and I had no idea of the depth of the book. And it's really pleasurable to see that they think the book is a great deal deeper and more, and more thought-provoking than, than the movie. You look at all that stack of comments, like I say, and the guy that narrates the book does a very good job. And... I'm either going to finish this narration or get a copy of the book myself and reread it. Anyway, I think that uh, Starship Troopers is something that every young person in this country today ought to, ought to watch the film and read the book. I gathered a, a few quotes from the book together, and one of the most important things I think that Heinlein is attempting to convey, even back then, which is amazing because things have gotten so much worse now, is the balancing of rights and responsibilities and duty. Oh, and yeah. that is, the, that is the, the major theme that comes across in the book. I mean, in the film, too, they, I think they it accidentally slips through to some degree by just including some of Heinlein's own words. But ultimately, let's see. Um, I'll read a few quotes, and I think listeners will realize just how relevant this is for today because it is, it's, it's, it's like a, almost an indictment of what's going on at the moment. When he says social responsibility above the level of family or at most of tribe requires imagination, devotion, loyalty, all the higher virtues which a man must develop himself. If he has them forced down him, he will vomit them out. And that is like Jack Parsons talking about why it's important to never have conscription, why uh, virtue cannot be forced, because when virtue is enforced, it loses. It's no longer virtue. Highland goes on, under our system, our every voter, every office holder is a man who has demonstrated, man or woman, who has demonstrated through voluntary and difficult service that they place the welfare of the group ahead of personal advantage. And this is the one practical difference. He may fail in wisdom. He may lapse in civic virtue. But his average performance is enormously better than that of any other class of rulers in history. 
And he goes on to say, he talks about the time in Starship Troopers, the, the Federation was born out of a time where uh, the West had completely collapsed, that the liberal democracies of the West had descended into constant bickering about rights with no conversation about duty or responsibility. And that sounds very familiar. He talks about uh, America, America and England and, strangely, Russia fighting against China and eventually losing um, and descending into absolute chaos where they had um, mobs of juvenile delinquents or like uh, criminals, like young people running around and trashing the place just absolutely all over the shop. Um, as he said, Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Oh, very, very familiar. It's um, the yeah. junior hoodlum who roamed their streets were symptoms of a greater sickness. Their citizens, all of them counted as such, glorified their mythology of rights and lost track of their duties. No, no, no nation so constituted can endure. And that's right. That's absolutely right. As he says, I told you that yeah. juvenile delinquent is a contradiction in terms. Delinquent means no. failing in duty, but duty is an adult virtue. Indeed, a juvenile becomes an adult when and only when he acquires a knowledge of duty and embraces it as dearer than the self-love he was born with. There never was, there never can be a juvenile delinquent, but for every juvenile criminal, there are always one or more adult delinquents, people of mature years, who either do not know their duty or who, knowing it, fail to do it. And that sounds very similar to a lot of the politicians that we have right now. It sounds a lot like the classic cry that you'll hear from almost everyone when the young soldiers are sent off to war, this cry of, why don't you go? You should go. You're the one who wants to fight. You're the one who wants to, to do this. Why are you sending our children off to die? That reminds me of the... Uh... A scene in uh, All Quiet on the Western Front where the, the German soldiers are all sitting around reminiscing about the war. And the one, one old sergeant says, well, the next war, what we're going to do is we're going to take all the politicians and we're going to give them clubs and we're going to get them in their underwear at a sports stadium. And all the soldiers are going to sit in the bleachers and cheer them on and let them fight it out. Oh, that sounds good. Uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Wouldn't that be good? Well, that's uh, but anyway. That's been repeated uh, by everyone since then. <laughs> I hope that uh, we're not giving our listeners the idea that we are warmongers or anything like that, and uh, but we're you know we're not doing that. Anyway, I think we've uh -huh. just about exhausted uh, uh, the subject, and uh, uh, next week we'll be back with. Uh, another show more oriented toward the hermetic mysteries. This uh, this one, of course, is uh, oriented toward good and provocative fiction, which we encourage everyone to to read and to view because the film has the film, in spite of the fact that the producer thought that he was uh, showing fascism, the screenwriter presented more of the essence of the book. I think. Uh, than the producer actually wanted. One of the things that I think is very important is um, some very basic, just, in fact, just one point on that. 
There's a phrase which is very, very popular. Um, it comes from the film that service guarantees citizenship. And I think people need right. to realize that if it was truly a fascist regime, the phrase would not be service guarantees citizenship. It would be citizenship guarantees service. Yeah. And it's, the fact that this is a voluntary service, it should be enough to tell people that this is, this is not a fascist regime. The, the fascists were not interested in you of your own volition, volunteering to do the will of the state. Um, and it must be said that, there's, again, the government in this was a constitutional republic where everyone had the, the civilians and citizens basically had the same rights that, that citizens had yeah. suffrage, could vote and hold office. And that is and they can an important vote. difference. That, and it was important yeah. to say that and everyone, that, as he says, everyone had the chance to, even no matter how crippled, no matter, the only thing that was that you, was necessary was that you understood the oath and they would find something for you to do, some difficult service for you so that you would always remember why you wanted to become a citizen, why you wanted to serve the body politic and why you um, volunteered for such difficulty. It was like a, a two-year difficult initiation into suffrage. Yeah, and it's and it's part of the idea of a meritorious, of a meritorious society. Uh, by the way, one more thing I want to mention about in the novel. You remember that recruiter, the, the legless and armless recruiter, the guy that told yeah. the kids, "The mobile infantry made me the man I am today." <laughs> yeah. Well, in the book, he actually tries to discourage all the kids, and even uh, Rico and the mobile infantry. He lectures Rico. He says, "We don't, we don't need stupid people in the in the in the mobile infantry. You've got to be a specialist. We're gonna, you're gonna, you have to operate so much sophisticated equipment. We're gonna spend millions of credits training you. So don't, don't just 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 think you can join the mobile infantry and tough it out. You've got to toe the mark. And he's trying to discourage. Actually, he's trying to discourage him. Instead of that, the screenwriter made him into a you know, he had that remark, the mobile infantry made me the man I am today. Uh, and it was clever, yeah, but that's not what he said. A regular foot soldier today has a heck of a lot more responsibility than he did in the 1940s before World War I. I mean, World War II. Because before World War II, our army was, in many ways, as far as the enlisted people were concerned, were made up of guys, from, they had a choice. Uh, southern boys, and they had a choice. Uh, the judge gave them a choice. Uh, okay, kid, uh, you can take two years on the county road gang, or you can have three years in the Army. What's it going to be? They made up a hell of a lot of our, our grunts in, in 1941 that we went to war with. That's not the way it is anymore. Those, those chain gang refugees would not be able to handle all the tech, technical technological stuff that uh, – uh, that modern soldiers or the mobile infantry would have to contend with. Just read the first couple of pages of Starship Troopers when Rico is making that drop and how he's describing all of the communications with the other guys and all, uh, and all the technology that goes into it. And that's what our army is coming to now. We have no need for, for uneducated, virtually illiterate soldiers. We don't. And... Um, uh, so consequently, uh, even though the mobile infantry and, and, and uh, Starship Troopers was 
in many ways, they thought they were expendable, but really they weren't. Federation spent a lot of money on them. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, they were not expendable but, in the book at all. They were all extremely highly trained special forces. And um, it, yeah. in the movie, they were just described as like World War II soldiers, grunts that are just, just passed basic training and fed into grinder. But in the book, and again, this is consistent with the idea of an exclusivist. That's why he would discourage. I mean, you don't want just anyone to join your elite fighting force where every single person needs to do pull their weight or people die. Um, and that's a, what you would not encourage someone if you thought that they were in, insufficient. But oh, if they have a constitutional right to actually do these things, then you have to give them the chance. You can beat them over the head as much as you like, but if they still manage to make it through the gauntlet, then that's exactly, I mean, that's exactly what he envisaged, the fact that no matter who they are, so long as they can understand the oath, you need to give them something that is yeah. difficult, that will forever make them appreciate why they yeah. wanted to be a part of the, 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 the citizenship, yeah. the, the politics, so that they understood what it meant to sacrifice what it means to serve before they un took on the authority to govern. And I yeah. think that is an incredible message. Whether, whether you take this, this, um, this novel, whatever you think of this novel, the idea that someone understands service before they understand authority, that's a lesson that this age, death the West, desperately needs right now. Well, remember the dedication. He dedicated it to his drill sergeant and all their other drill sergeants that made boys into men. And I thought Clancy Brown really, really, Clancy Brown was, in my opinion, a better drill sergeant than, than Army, you know, <laughs> or Army. The, the, I, I, I really think he was. He did a beautiful job. Anyway, next week, uh, another hermetic mystery, and thanks a lot for coming aboard, Max, and I'll uh, see you soon, and happy birthday, by the way. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I'll see you tomorrow. Okay. Uh, happy birthday and many happy returns, and, and everybody out there, good magic.